Okay, welcome back to the Five Things podcast brought to you by Grey Group and Social Media Week for the week of January 20th. And before I introduce everybody, um, this is the first podcast of 2020, so Happy New Year, everybody. And, and the reason it's the first podcast of 2020, after promising you uh, a live five things from CES in Las Vegas last week, which we did, uh, and I think it was a really interesting chat, but unfortunately, for various technical problems, it didn't record. So we didn't have microphones. We didn't <laughs> take microphones or any equipment, and we just thought somebody would capture I it. I don't think we were even at CES. That was one of the other issues I, I remember. We weren't there. No, we weren't. That was it was the deep well. fake avatar version of yeah. us. So we did have one, and we had a great guest, and we're going to bring him back for a, a redo of that podcast. But So this is officially the first one of 2020. Happy New Year, team. Happy New Year. Happy um, New Year, Dan. Let me... Uh, let me tell our listener who we have with us today. So, uh, <laughs> as always, we have Toby Daniel, the uh, CEO and founder of uh, Social Media Week, right. and Kenny Gold, who's the North American head of social media for Grey Group. Hello. Um, but I'm also really happy today we have two new voices. Uh, one is Carol Chang, who's a planning director here at Grey and a co-host with me on our other Grey podcast, Grey Matter. Hello, Carol. Hello. And sitting with her today is Catherine O'Brien, who is a creative director and writer here at Grey and uh, all around creative genius. Oh. Not on our other podcast. Oh. I'm the only person in the room who doesn't regularly host a podcast. Yet. Yet. We can help you with that. Yet. Yeah. This is your audition. This quick plug, quick plug. <laughs> check out the latest spot from Adore Me Ooh. that Kat produced and created. It's amazing. Thanks, Kenny Jeez. G. Okay, it's unusual. Um, <laughs> so let's go through the five things, right? Without further ado. We're going to cover today, uh, Toby's going to start us off talking about Facebook adding a new political ad feature. In our, in our section, subsection of the podcast hosted by Toby, which is our political... Uh, ramblings. It's called One Political Thing. One Political Thing of which we don't know much about. Right. Uh, number two, Coca-Cola launching a subscription service is Kenny. And then number three, Carol's going to talk to us about uh, TikTok uh, and their enhanced protections against platform misinformation. Good luck with that one, Carol. Um, <laughs> number four is going to be Catherine, Twitter uh, previewing reply uh, limit feature. That's an interesting one. And then number five is going to wrap up with Kenny talking about uh, just chatting. So streams outnumbering, chatting streams outnumbering gaming streams on Twitch. That's a snappy headline. Anyway, yeah. so uh, without further ado, Toby, Facebook adding political ad feature. Thanks, Dan. Uh, as always, I have to caveat this with um, the fact that we're not a political podcast. We're not. I am not a political expert. You are not. Our audience are not experts in politics necessarily. So this is a, a, a light version of uh, yes. how we might sort of analyze this particular kind of update and piece of news. However, it is important. And I think uh, we've covered this many times on previous, po previous podcasts, but what are we really talking about? So Facebook will be offering more transparency and control over political ads for users, both uh, on the Instagram and also Facebook platforms. Um, what this means is that rather than making any wholesale changes to its policies or political ads, Facebook is instead giving its users more control over the ads they see. 
just what Facebook users want is more control, yes. right? More, more, more thing, more buttons and levers to kind of sort of like fiddle with to uh, ensure they get the uh, I know it's what precise uh, user experience yeah. that they're looking for. And I'll come back to talk about that in just a second. Um, so very similar to how you can currently tell Facebook what you want less of in terms of ads on certain topics. The company says that it will add a new control to let you see fewer political and social issue ads across Facebook and Instagram. Plans to roll out this feature starting uh, starting this summer in the US. So, what are they waiting for? Oh yeah, um, starting this November sixth. Yeah. yeah, starting on December first after the election. <laughs> so, um, I've actually listened to a bunch of podcasts, read a bunch of stuff on this over the course of the last like week, or or at least since the news came out. And and the big criticism that Facebook is receiving right now, particularly in the fact that everyone wants them to ban political ads. Um, other platforms, or Twitter at least, has banned ads. Google has taken some measures towards at least um, changing their own policies. Facebook is basically saying, no, we're not going to do that. Um, and the criticism they're facing right now is the fact that it seems to a lot of people they're more interested in generating money than they are necessarily about trying to stamp out um, the issue of politicians being able to lie in these political ads. Um, but the key issue here, and, and I'm not necessarily going to take a side or a stance, but the key issue here is that Trump has spent for this particular campaign about $27 million on a Facebook platform. Not an insignificant amount, and certainly a significant amount of money as a percentage of what he's spending elsewhere. Um, and so, so this criticism is that, like, well, Facebook just wants to take the money, doesn't want to deal with the issue. Um, they, they are not interested in necessarily stamping out lies. And while on the face of it, it does appear to most people that like this is a public-facing company that's just trying to kind of maximize shareholder value, the truth is this is not a significant amount of money. This is like less than a percent of, of, of what they make in total revenue. Instead, and this is the kind of the other side of the debate, I think at least, and a lot of other people agree, that Facebook is again just trying to take the moral high ground in regards to free speech, which is an incredibly complicated subject. Obviously, Mark has come out um, and talked about like their position on this. A lot of people disagree with him. It's a thorny issue, um, and I think ultimately it isn't going to get resolved anytime soon, which means that at least for this political cycle and for the 2020 campaign, um, Facebook isn't going to make any really significant changes that's going to kind of stamp out this this one issue that seems to kind of like be most problematic for people, which is the fact that you can still lie on the Facebook platform and put money behind these lies to promote and distribute them through their network. So I'll jump in and just say, I for someone who is generally pretty critical of what Facebook does. I actually really like this solution. I think it's kind of elegant. It's not just saying writ large that we're going to get rid of these things and, and just not have them on the platform, but it allows for user choice, which I think is at the heart of what these networks are designed to do. They allow for you to connect with people and ideas and thoughts and brands with the element of your own filter of how you want to do it. There, in in a lot of ways, and we when before George W. Bush was elected, there was a lot of talk about how The Daily Show was the most influential political news show that was out there, even though it was satirizing a lot of what was going on. And in in the progression of political discourse in the United States, I think a lot of people are passing the buck 
off on other people to evaluate what's real and what's not. There's some, the ability to vote and the ability to have a say comes with the responsibility of being able to learn and decipher and go out there and educate yourself. So what Facebook is doing in a lot of ways is it's ensuring that you can move those levers up and down and see what you want to see and, and have it done in a way that fits within your broader content consumption behavior that exists on the channel. But it's also requiring you to take that bit and educate yourself to make yourself an informed voter, which I think with the responsibility of voting, that's something that's important. So I really do like it. I think the next component of that being able to filter what is legitimate, what's not is important and it's something for the channels to really dive into. But there's something nice about what they're doing. Um, and, I, I just I disagree and we can't spend we'll spend all day on this if we're not careful. I think they should ban them. I just what you're supposing and and suggesting is that the uh, majority of the voting public have an understanding of how an extremely complicated platform works and that therefore they can decipher the reality from the bullshit on that platform or even go into their own settings and change them, which we know historically they don't or can't or um, generally don't have an understanding of how to do. And I think because of that level of manipula manipulation, because of that level of muddiness that's in it and because it's such an important issue, they need to take a much more substantial stand on it. I do want to say one more thing, quick thing. And I have just a question for you too. Go, go for it. No, 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 you go. No, please. Because I, you both, I agree with what you both of you are saying. Smart. I think this is an <laughs> and I also disagree with what you're both saying. Um, basically what you said, I agree that the platforms in large cases should just ban political advertising, but do you think that political ads should be banned altogether? Because if they can't air on it, Facebook, you know, it's a weird one. I think it might might be because of where I come from, where Toby comes from. But in England, the, Wait, the we come from the same place. Yes, both of us come from um, New uh, York professional modeling school in England. Wait, your mum, who is the listener, yeah. is also my she'll mom. call in and tell us. Oh, okay, yeah, great. she has my birth certificate. Um, it's very different. So to some extent, I was raised in a place I think where. I think probably on this particular issue, I tend to align more with it, which is that much more limited approach to advertising, much more truncated process for elections, etc. I don't disagree with Kenny, and, and indeed you. I think the ability to educate yourself in your political views is critical. I just think there's a layer of technology that gets desperately in the way of that when you're applying that same thought to the Facebook platform. And podcast twist, I'm also from a country with a very similar political system, Canada. Uh, yes, indeed. And it comes down to limiting political spending versus yes. where it's aired. So that's a whole other conversation. And I don't disagree with you. I actually completely agree with you. But yeah. then it, that's, a, that's a political conversation, Fa not a social media Facebook conversation. Facebook gives you the ability to reach just as many people as a TV spot that runs on Fox. They are the same thing. They are communication channels that allows for one party to communicate with another. And if you're gonna start banning it on one, you're talking about banning it on another. Well, that's, I think that's, that's the issue. That's Sheryl Sandberg's point, or at least one of the points she's made in defense of them not banning them, is that she feels they should be held to the same standards as like broadcast media and essentially, right, yes. you know, um, no one is asking broadcast media to ban political ads. I think though, to your earlier point, and I, I understand we do need to wrap up because this is a, a, a one that could go on for a long time. The individual agency and take people taking individual responsibility, um, I think is important along with like self-regulation, government regulation, et cetera, et cetera. The issue with, um, individual accountability is that like most people really have no idea 
how to navigate, what these controls are. Um, and, and very few are interested in taking the necessary steps to put those safeguards in place. Same is true of the fact that like people could spend probably 15 minutes to turn off all their notifications, to turn their device into something that isn't constantly interrupting them. Do they? No, of course not. Um, so I think we just have to like recognize that individuals are not going to take these steps necessary to kind of like change what they see in terms of like it, it's apps. too it's too prone to manipulation for me right now. That's why I think it needs to be uh, more substantially dealt with. And before Kenny can get another word in, I'm going to move on. That has been the <laughs> one political thing podcast brought to you. But no, uh, number two, Ken, Kenny, this is you, mate. Can I talk now? Just kidding. So Coca-Cola launched <laughs> subscription services. Uh, so uh, for the first time, they have launched their new subscription service, which is known as Insider's Club, and it allows consumers to receive new drinks on their doorstep before they hit the shelves. And the box will be handpicked by Coca-Cola. They'll arrive once a month right on your doorstep for the next six months. Now, it's kind of an interesting thing. They leverage Twitter to reach and fuel that existing passionate fan base that they have. And within hours of announcing this, um, they had all of the 1,000 beta subscription spots filled. Um, I think that this is not new news for brands to be introducing subscription services. It is interesting to see a brand like this leveraging social to uh, just galvanize that fan base and see if this is something that is an interesting thing for their consumer base. Uh, to me, it just proves out a point that the biggest brands are leveraging social uh, to beta test concepts, products, thoughts, and innovations for their consumers. Uh, so interesting to see one of the biggest brands in the world do it. Interesting to see how it nets out. Carol and I were talking about this before the podcast. Who is drinking this much soda? Um, that's probably <laughs> a bigger question, uh, but definitely a, a nice step for Coca-Cola in the personalization and uh, innovation space. And presumably also just like an attempt by a brand to start to capture first party data. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Real time focus grouping. If you agree to do this subscription service, we're going to get to hear what you think of these products. Yeah. Focus yeah, group mask a subscription sounds, service. It oh. sounds great, like for marketers and advertisers and everyone in this room. But at the same time, like at a time where we're trying to limit our use of single use plastic, yeah. we're now getting a bunch of them delivered to our door. Yeah. It just saddens me. Yeah, it does seem a bit counterintuitive to that. Although there is a status play here. I mean, like, who wouldn't want to be an insider? The, insiders, the Coca Cola the Coca insiders. insiders but yeah, it, but I'm a Coke insider. The insider Club. How many new drinks are these people releasing every a lot. month? You would a be lot. surprised. Well, because really? they're doing energy drinks, they're doing water, they're doing every sodas, month? they're doing. I actually, there's huh. some. I forget the name of the startup, but there is one where they are giving you reusable containers, and when you finish the stuff inside, you put it back on your doorstep. They refill it and give it back oh, to you. Loop. So yeah. it'd be interesting to see, you know, what Coca Cola does on the sustainability front. I do think that's a well, this, this feels to me like an opportunity, an opportunity, a missed opportunity, really, in terms of being able to come out and do something in that regard. God. Like yeah, we're thing inside this club. Oh, by the way, this is also part yeah. of our like efforts to be more I, sustainable. I, I'm feeling punchy today, and so uh, let me weigh in on this one as well. Uh, to Carol's point, I don't think it's progressive in in the direction we need companies like this to be progressive in. I don't think it's proposing a new way of consuming, right? It is a proposing a new way of marketing and, and gathering data. It is an attempt, perhaps, to think about a DTC relationship that they might not have right now. Um, and it's something we're seeing across many of our large CPG clients, and I understand it. It's a smart move, but it, it, it is not... The, there doesn't feel like there's much innovation in their packaging being just one of those things. Um, anyway, told you I'm feeling punchy. Number three, right... 
Carol, TikTok, this is a tough one, it's a fun one. TikTok <laughs> enhancing protection against platform misinformation. Absolutely. Um, all right, so I'll tell, tell you a little bit about what happened. So TikTok uh, updated its platform guidelines to tackle the sharing of harmful misinformation. So Toby was kind of mentioning a little bit of, of what's been happening at Facebook. Um, this is a nice response to it, I think. The platform will now remove content that spreads misinformation, which incites fear, hate, or prejudice. We can all agree that those are all good things to, to, to ban or remove. Uh, additional bans include content that could cause harm to an individual's health and content that misleads community members about elections or other civic processes. I mean, yeah, uh, this is obviously a touchy subject for all of us. I feel like, uh, again, this is a great response to uh, Facebook kind of not backing down from allowing misinformation or lies um, within political ads and, you know, uh, coming coming at the heels of Twitter and Google also banning it. Um, to be honest, I would feel uh, better about TikTok making this move if they were known to be a platform that really spread information about politics. I don't think that right. it is. Mm -hmm. um, I'd also be more impressed if the large portion of the population was of voting age. I completely agree. <laughs> I was thinking the exact same thing. Do, do you think it's connected? Yeah. I mean, are we, are we conflating two things here in relation to the political piece? Is this, is this more about sort of... Is this more an anti-bullying stance than well, it is information? It's, a, it's, a, it's across the board, really, because it's about protecting users. Um, I mean, look, they've got a, a pretty comprehensive kind of like list of like how they're expanding what what was essentially their their old um, guidelines. So we're talking about like content that's dangerous, dangerous to individuals and organizations, illegal activities and regulated goods, violent and graphic content, suicide, self harm, dangerous acts, hate speech, bullying, adult nudity. Minor safe or oh, minor safety, like minor safety. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's just okay. a little bit of safety would be great. Um, <laughs> integrity and authenticity, threats to platform security. Uh, it, it, it's so just building on what you were saying. I think it's an important move, um, particularly because for a period of time we've talked about this a lot. We were like, okay, is TikTok just being like super cavalier about this sort of stuff on purpose? Do they not care about their users? Um, could, because they've obviously sort of made a number of fairly grand kind of gestures towards the US government in terms of like whether they will or will not sort of turn up and testify. Right. Um, and so it's important, it sends a message to our industry and hopefully this message also sort of filters into the kind of the mainstream about like the fact they actually do care about user safety. So that's I think definitely important. But guidelines are only as good as like um, uh, as, are only as good and, and important as as um, um, uh, in, in terms of has how effective they are, um, whether they actually like change behavior or stamp out kind of like you know any negative behavior or harmful sort of content. So we'll obviously have to sort of wait and see in that regard. I think every platform is in the same position. And I'm starting to feel as though it's an almost impossible decision. As long as there's social media, yeah. as long as it's easy to get on it, create accounts and distribute content, there are always going to be bad actors and there are always going to be like these types of sort of like problems. That being said, mm. if we think about the work that was being done by Social Media Week and the 404 and Gray and the concept of training the next generation of digital citizens to, to act with empathy and, and act responsibly on social media. I think that TikTok putting this stake in the ground is, is important in 
the early education of social media usage with a filter of empathy. Um, so I applaud them for doing it. I think TikTok, it's a bad rap because people don't understand it and they talk about it in a way where they think it's just like, it's where the kids are and bad things are happening. Right. Uh, kids do extraordinary creative things on this platform. And I think in, in putting these, um, these things into place that are going to help them behave with more empathy towards one another and make it a more responsible platform at their age will help make them better digital citizens in the future. So I think it's fantastic that they're doing it. Yeah, I, I think there will always be bad actors. There will always, so therefore this will always be an issue. I think the more we can shine a light on and promote like empathy, kindness, compassion and positivity through these platforms, um, the, be the the more chance we have actually of like squeezing out the kind of the bad actors. And by, by the way, bad, by bad actors, I'm not talking about like- Alec Baldwin. Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> but, but I, think I don't think he's on TikTok anyway. And I think back to what you said, it reflects the, the user base, the difference between, it's a generational divide. Yes. Right. The generation that is more commonly on Facebook respect free speech above all else versus TikTok. Not that they don't respect free speech, but the younger generation has a much deeper need for empathy and kindness. And so I respect that TikTok has tried to put a stake in the stand and define what this content is that they're banning instead of just saying like true and untrue we're going to ban content that's a lie well who gets to define what the truth is they've said content that spreads misinformation that's basically harmful to people as mm -hmm. defined as blank 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 they might right. not have gotten it perfectly right yet but they're the first people that have really started to put some framework around what untrue content are they going to prevent i mean i agree i i do applaud them because there is no federal regulation right mm -hmm. now so they're they're setting their own rules and i feel like surprisingly tiktok is becoming this leader i didn't see that coming either. i didn't either i didn't either so i'm i'm I don't <laughs> agree that they're, they're not doing anything that the platforms aren't already doing or haven't already done tiktok is lagging let's not like pretend that they're somehow they're also kind of a lot they're also a lot role. newer though so they, they deserve newer. some credit there let's there's, think about there are a lot of things change. that we, there are a lot of things that we're potentially conflating here the, the one of the ones that i always take issue with is this idea that like just because there are young people on the tiktok platform that somehow like these protections need to be different than the protections that need to exist on like instagram and facebook i think I that like what we're saying. across the board this needs to be sort of tackled, but we have to understand that guidelines are very different uh, from uh, the ways in which they are interpreted and then implemented, and then ultimately how effective they will be at the end of the day. And I just unfortunately suspect that they won't be particularly effective. So you think these are more hypothetical right now versus how they put them into practice is kind of fall down a bit. You raised the, the perfect point, which is it's really difficult to put into practice uh, an interpretation of a guideline that basically is saying that we will stamp out misinformation or you know you know how do we sort of determine what is or is not a lie it's almost impossible that's why it's so hard that's why it's difficult to to actually like affect change in this particular context because it's so hard Who you know do you it's think not impossible oh go ahead no no you have to go ahead okay thank you <laughs> I, i'm about <laughs> like to interrupt a canadian and a brit trying to out polite I, I each other i want to hear what you have to say i was gonna course. say who do you think's getting it the most right no one is no but but if you were to do a scale of who's getting it the least wrong, we'll reframe. <laughs> Still, no, no one. We no found the cynic in the room. Reddit. <laughs> and, no, but I, I, but no, Reddit's completely behind free speech. They're, they're like, the, I mean, I, not that that's wrong, but it's like exactly what you're saying. Who defines what the truth is? TikTok to me is attempting to put more framework around it, but you think that's still no one, no one. It, is, it, is, so a, it is a topic we talk about a lot on the, on this podcast, and and to that end, 
I'm going to move us past it. As I say, they're all in a passport position. All of them. Every I agree. I agree. Did you hear the bit about moving past it? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, number four. Catherine, take it away. Twitter previewing uh, reply limits. I feel like we're going to be dancing around the same subject I know, again with I this know, one. Sorry, Dan, but I'm going to have to bring it back. So Twitter previewed their reply limit feature. So what does that mean? It's basically going to enable Twitter users to define and limit the audience of people who can reply to tweets. So when a user composes a tweet, they can basically now select four different audiences. Global, which you know what you're used to, anyone can reply. Group, which means only users that you follow or mention in your tweet. Panel, only users you do directly mention. And Statement, which is basically, this is a rhetorical question, no commentary allowed. So again, this is back to our conversation that we have been circling around all day. I think it's the biggest conversation in social media right now. Mm-hmm. Twitter's taken a different approach. They haven't basically said we are going to limit what is going to be posted, but we are going to limit or we're going to allow users to limit who can reply. So in terms of the echo chamber conversation that comes around and around, obviously this is allowing people to create their own silos for conversation. Is that bad? Is that good? Is this the ultimate clapback against Twitter trolls? I don't know. I can see the strength and the weakness here. To me, because Twitter has become a place for such bullying when you have these only global... Po- I, I, I actually stand behind this. I support this. I'm, I'm normally in your camp. I don't think you should limit free speech, but this I, this I actually support. Sometimes you just want to say something. You don't want the whole world telling you that it sucks. Unintended consequences. Yo, what yes, do we let's think examine they those. will be? Because my my instinct is that like most people who want to avoid repercussions or trolls or any negativity in regards to the stuff that they put out into what is essentially an open network of information will just like default to statement, right? Is that bad? Uh, I don't know. I, I think there is an unintended consequence to uh, giving people that level of control, um, particularly in a situation where like, if you are concerned that there is going to be repercussions or there will be like, you know, there will be trolls or just negativity around what the thing you're going to put out, you're just going to be like, yeah, I'm going to put this out as a statement. No one can respond to this. That doesn't feel in the, it doesn't feel like it's in the spirit of why Twitter exists and what makes it so great. That's what Facebook did like five years ago when they started to build like lists and you could choose who things went to and how often they went to them. And exactly. Only me versus yeah. this group of people. This is not... But that's because Facebook in principle is 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 open but with like mm-hmm. but within like walled gardens and twitter has that ability too there are people that have private that have twitter accounts that are locked for only the people they follow i think this is about giving users more control about the way that they distribute their message i like the idea of diversifying the type of content you could push out on social media from a broadcast piece of content to something that is designed to generate conversation exactly. to something that is designed to be for a smaller group of people. I, 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 you know, it's funny. Everyone's like, oh, if I'm on this channel, do I need to be on these channels? Do I need like every channel serves its purpose? What I think the channels are trying to do is trying to find ways for you to be able to serve all purposes on their channel so that you are spending more and more time on there, engaging with more ads, et cetera, et cetera. I like this as just another way to control the way that I tweet out. Not a ton of people engage with my Twitter feed at KRG. Follow me tomorrow. 
Um, but you know, I think there's some interesting, there's some interesting thought here about the evolution of Twitter as sort of the what's happening now channel. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean for interactivity between the content you push out? Question for great people. I was just going to say, what does this mean for brands? Well, historically we've, I mean, our, the beauty of social media in its infancy years ago for brands was the ability to suddenly start having two way conversations, right? The ability to be a bit more engaged with the, um, consumer base and I think probably that hasn't necessarily changed as a core tenet of how we approach it and I don't think brands I don't think brand, I think this is a risky path for brands to go down to start occasionally shutting off who they allow to respond and what they allow to respond because that transparency is pretty important in my I, I would never tell a brand to kick this feature on I would mm. say keep it open for a brand I... crawl walk run like with anything else like if you're a brand that interacts with a certain celebrity and you wanted to do something interesting that allowed for you to do a one-on-one piece of engagement that limited everything else. It could be a nice testing ground. I never am one to be like, that feature is never usable by brands. I think it's the kind of thing where in the right instance, in the right situation, you can test it and it could be something interesting. I think if you want to engage with a celebrity, I'd want everyone jumping in. I would say like, don't waste your, your toss over to them if the whole crowd can't be, you know, comment. That's the whole reason that you do it. I don't know, strategically, would you tell a would a I brand tell- to basically say like limit your replies if you I'm in your camp but I think it's most interesting coming from a consumer standpoint like I feel like it's we feel so fatigued as Americans as consumers from social media I'm tired of the replies I'm tired of the trolls like this is a nice response to it it does seem to reflect that I agree it would be interesting as a thought when it comes to customer service for a brand like think about a brand like a Delta that is constantly trying to figure out how to get people off of feed into the DM so that they can have that one-on-one conversation. It would be interesting what that does to that component of that engagement. And you still be able to DM people. That's an interesting thought. Like if, if I make a, a tweet and I just basically say like no replies at all and you have an issue with it, you can still sure. message me on Twitter. It's just that the whole world doesn't get to see your reply. So yes. that's the different difference. You don't get to publicly comment. We destroy things. the group think. Okay, Which team, let's move on. Uh, number five. It's meaty material. That's good. But, you know, be, I have to be time cop sometimes. I naturally cop like anyway. Because of the hats. You I said wear. cop. Cop. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Good one. Uh, number five is the fact that just chatting streams outnumber gaming streams on Twitch. Kenny yeah. Gold? So, a really interesting turn for where Twitch is as a platform. Uh, Twitch is most known for the ability for people to watch live streaming of games and gamers and the interaction that they have while they're playing various games. In 2016, the concept of IRL and more than just gaming streams entered into the Twitch world. And just chatting was a big part of that. And that was the ability to do basically vlogging, where you could talk to camera about any topic from the most mundane to the most serious. And uh, people were able to interact with that and see that going on. And I think when it first happened, people who were on Twitch were were pretty perturbed. But uh, for the first time ever, we are seeing that just chatting streams are actually outnumbering gaming streams. Seven million hours more on just chatting than the first game listed, which is League of Legends, and 23 million more than the second game, which is Fortnite. So this speaks to the diversification of Twitch as a live streaming channel and the definition of the type of content that the Twitch user base wants to be interested in. Uh, Very, very, very fascinating move uh, in terms of consumption behavior. I think for marketers, this is a nice signal of what type of content is working on Twitch when you want to engage with that platform. And um, it just... 
shows that live content is continuing continuing to evolve. The appetite for live content is continuing to evolve, and it, it presents a really interesting uh, shift in what the Twitch user base is doing. Why? Why do you think this shift has happened? What does it really speak to in terms of like what the users on this particular platform were yearning for or, or feel like they need over and above just simply watching a live stream of someone playing a game? Yeah, I think watching gamers game can feel very passive. I think engaging with someone who's speaking directly to camera, talking about an issue that matters to you, whether it's from a humor perspective or an emotional. But this is the actual gamers themselves yeah, engaged it, in conversation it, with the, their audience. It, it's the, is that what we're talking about? It's the influencers on Twitch sitting vlogging, basically. Yeah, as well, yeah. not necessarily, because it's not... When we just do just chatting streams, that doesn't mean it's a gamer doing a just chatting stream. It could be a, a person who's an expert in love talking about relationships is a just chatting stream it could be a food expert talking about innovations and thoughts on food and recipes so, so it so, could be like not gaming related yeah, at all the, the, the most popular just chatting streams aren't gaming streams so to me it talks to personally for me it talks to the inalienable fact that human beings are interesting like mm -hmm. That at a certain point they become more interesting than individual properties like games or you know other entertainment things. I think it's I think it speaks to that and it speaks to some of the power that YouTube has right now with, when it comes to a similar sort of feature. It also is when you think about how popular AMAs are on Reddit. It, yeah. It it is yeah. it is in that vein that yeah. people like the raw, truthful emotion being spoken straight to camera. Mm. So um, it's not shocking. Also, like you know, conversation as a medium is nothing new. Um, however, we've sort of replaced traditional conversation in person, face to face with all sorts of other different synchronous, asynchronous ways of having conversation, messaging, chat, like yeah. all these different things, um, which which have sort of created new user behaviors that perhaps like are not um, natural or comfortable in, in regards to how we want to engage. This could also just speak to the fact that like there's now that the technology is caught up to the fact that people just want to be able to engage face-to-face one-to-one or through at least some type of like live stream um because ultimately that's way more satisfying and enjoyable absolutely okay guys so that was uh we ran over a bit this week that was five interesting things i think uh, a couple of things on housekeeping we're going to be back next week and weekly again um now that we're into the new year um so make sure you subscribe right make sure you get notifications for when these uh come out and they will be coming out weekly um i want to thank the crew we've got here today as always toby daniels carol chang Catherine o'brien kenny gold i've been dan bennett thanks for joining us for this week's episode of five things and we'll see you next week